you're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land called Startups for the Rest of Us. This is episode 604. I'm your host, Rob Walling. Today, I talk with Derek Reimer about a number of topics. His new Squadcast integration, how he makes product decisions, whether he would prefer to fight one horse-sized duck or 100 duck-sized horses, and things we've bought for $100 and $1,000 that have added much more value to our lives than their price point. Derek and I go way back. I've known him for probably 12-ish years, and I always love jumping on the mic with him because we know each other well, and we can just go from topic to topic and uh, just have a fun conversation. And frankly, it's similar to a conversation he and I would have if we we're just hanging out for an afternoon, going to a happy hour. And in this case, you get to listen in. It's much more of a conversation than an interview. You may know Derek as the founder of SavvyCal or as the co-host of the Art of Product podcast. And if you haven't seen his design and development work, he is a full, full stack dev. Head to SavvyCal.com and check it out because he makes pretty amazing products. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to dive into his decision-making process about which features to build in today's episode. So without further ado, let's dive into our conversation. So I want to show you something. This is completely impromptu, and this is not one of the topics that I brought to discuss today, but an, a delivery from Apple just arrived. And I want to show this to you. We can describe it to the listeners. But basically, Sherry has, dude, she has a standing desk awesome fully standing desk. They make them in Portland. And she has, the, you know, the laptop stands that you put the laptop up. So, you know, it's yep. at your eye height. So she has yep. that. She has no external keyboard or mouse. So I walk in when she's typing, she's like up on her chair, literally typing on the laptop. That's like six <laughs> inches off the ground. Oh, I'm no. like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is, you know, worst posture ever. So I was like, would you like me to get you an external keyboard and mouse? So I go on the Apple website, comparing it to Amazon as one does, right? What are the prices, deliverability? Apple says for the, for the new wireless keyboard and wireless mouse, we can get it to you tomorrow for $8 shipping, or we can deliver it by courier for $9 in the next two hours. <laughs> I'm like, oh my I gosh. guess I'll take that <laughs> option B. So it shows up, and in true Apple form, it's like a really nice, yep. really nice bag. Nice but the bag. kicker is, look at, look at the, let's see if I can get this. Can oh, you yes. see? A pull tab. There's a pull yes. tab on the top of yes. the bag. You know, all Apple stuff has this amazing experience, right, of the opening experience. And I know, you know, listeners, I realize this is not the, the best radio, but <laughs> I was just so impressed with their, they just think about that, right? It's the details of packaging, you know? You know what? I have a similar story. So my wife just sadly was pulling like a towel off the counter and her Apple watch was sitting there and it went with it and hit the tile and shattered the face of the, of the watch. Huh. And we priced it out like new one versus repair. Repair is like pretty expensive, but then like to get a fully tricked out newer generation one, it'd be like double the cost. So we're like, all right, maybe we'll just repair this. Let's see how that experience goes. And so you you put through a request for this. They send you a box. You open the box, and it is like an, a brand new Apple product box that has the little pull tabby thingy. You open it up, and there's like this 
this little sheath that you pull the cover off and you nestle your watch face inside and then you press it back down and it holds it suspended in this little plastic capsule. And then they have these little uh, these little pieces of tape that are like the pull tabby thing that Apple provides. And they, they give you instructions, little pictogram instructions for how to close the box, how to tape it properly, peel the the shipping label off so that it's the return label on the other side, like everything just highly curated. So Apple. And that's something that is amazing. And they have obviously world-class industrial designers thinking through that stuff. And they have the luxury of being able to do that, right? Because they had this amazing product line. I mean, I know Steve Jobs from day one always wanted everything to be beautiful, but they didn't really have the money to do it. You know, the Apple one was wooden. You know, mm-hmm. it had a wooden case. You kind of had to build, or you had to build your own, really. It was just a board. And then the Apple II was, it was nice for the time, but it was a plastic molded case. And Steve Jobs, you know, historically spent way too much on it. But then once they had a, a home run with, well, these days what it's the, the phone, right? That's what the phone and the, I think it doesn't the phone and the iPad make like all their money. Seems like it. I, I think, think so. Yeah. I think that's a mm-hmm. thing. I think the laptops themselves don't make much money, but they have the luxury of being able to kind of do whatever the hell they want. And isn't Apple's NPS is like one of the highest in the world, right? It's like in the nineties. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Do you think Apple's influence on us? Cause we're all obviously heavily influenced by putting Steve Jobs up on a pedestal and wanting to mimic you know how they how they operated. Do you think it's made like creators of software paying attention to too many small details, or do you think it's been a good a good impact? Yeah, that is interesting because one could say, well, if your software is amazing, people love it. The great product, you know, can help help sell itself. But on the other side, if you're bootstrapping, especially, and you over engineer the UX, right? Or you make everything perfect from day one it's detrimental because you don't launch. I think overall, I think engineers and designers who are bootstrapping or mostly bootstrapping, I think they default to spending too much time on the product. I think just across the board, that's in general. But there are exceptions to it, man, because like when you build something, you personally, <laughs> I know you spend a bunch of time, you know, yep. Savvy Cal UI, the Drip UI, the Code Tree UI, like you spent all this time, but to me it felt worth it because it was just so elegant and so next level versus I think the majority of people, myself included, probably spent too much time in the code, too much time tweaking the UI, but it wasn't incremental to that next level, right? And and no matter how much time I spent when I, w- I was a developer or as I was building front ends, I couldn't get it to that Apple polish like you can. You know, there's there's only so many. So I think overall it's detrimental, but I don't think, that doesn't mean I don't want them to keep making amazing hardware. Right. And I do think it's interesting because you could argue that Apple is just it's just part of their DNA that they have these really elegant experiences but it's not that important. Like I've heard people say like you can't compete on user experience like there has to be something more fundamental than that, but on the flip side I see I have friends with I have several friends with Android phones and uh <laughs> you know the green text message crew. Uh, <laughs> oh, savage. <Jeez. laughs> Starting it off right. And uh from time to time I've like looked at their phone I haven't really interfaced much with an Android phone but when I try to like look at how to do something on their phone it's like the interactions are just jerkier and like it's just not it's like 80% the same, but that extra 20% like makes all the difference where I would I don't think I could get out of the Apple ecosystem because because of user experience. So it's objectively not as good. Not not just I'm not used to this placement. It's like yep. it feels cheap to you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's such a trip. So when I see I switched from Windows, because obviously I used to be a Windows developer, and I switched around 2011, I think. Uh, yeah, I would say around 2011 to Mac. And the reason that I did it. 
was not because of the OS. I d- it didn't bother me at all. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when I got into the into Mac OS, it wasn't called that at the time, but what, what we use today is Mac OS. I actually found some, the windowing is garbage. Like I always need a utility to properly window in Mac. It's just, you know, it's just not as good as Windows, but I switched because of the hardware. I wanted that metal. I think I got an Air, the MacBook Air. I wanted the metal. I wanted that trackpad. There is now when I go back and my, my son has a, he has a Dell that he uses or a Chromebook. It's hot garbage, man. I know. The click isn't that, it's plastic. It's like, no, does no one else know how to make this or is it just too expensive? Yeah, it's shocking to me. I, I don't understand. Like companies with literal billions of dollars in their war chest, and we know Apple has many, many billions, but like still, these, their, their competitors are giant, and yet they can't nail a trackpad. I don't get it. Yep, the trackpad, and there's, what was it? For me, it was the, the trackpad, the aluminum. I mean, I just loved the metal laptop, and I bought like a Dell that was kind of trying to do it, but it was plastic, and it just wasn't that. I returned it, and I bought a Mac, and I was like, I'm just going to bite the bullet and switch, and switching kind of sucks, as you know, because it's like, oh, none of my, I know I don't know what to do. None of my apps work. But the other thing, man, that feature, the, what is it, the three-finger or four-finger swipe where you have multiple desktops, you needed an add-on to do that in Windows. I think they do it now, but I was like, how, how can, this is just fundamental. Like, get this in the OS, you know? Yep, yep. So folks want to hear about Savvy Cal. They want to know what's going on because it's been, I would guess, six months. Yeah, well, I want to call out one thing. You integrated with Squadcast. Holy moly, that saves me time. So Savvy Cal, obviously, is calendar, scheduling, booking link that I send to people. And what I had before was my Squadcast general room was just hard-coded. You know, you have just a base room, basically, that your personal meeting room, in essence. And I would hard-code that. So then all the recordings went into one room. So I have like 45 recordings now, so it's kind of hard to manage. So you integrated with them, and now it forks off a new room every time someone books, which is exactly the behavior I wanted. I was I'm so stoked. Yeah, no, that was a that was a fun one to build because it actually wasn't it wasn't a crazy amount of effort on our ha- on our behalf because it's just we have integrations like this already. We have a Zoom integration where we can very typical spin up a, a separate room for each calendar invite. So we already had like a place in the code base where that was happening, and it's cool that the Squadcast team is is in the Tiny Seed ecosystem. So we're we're already like we're friendly, and yeah, I can't remember where, where this one originated. Might have been just kind of a one off request. And podcasters is definitely a segment of the market that we're paying a lot of attention to. We have some exposure there from different marketing partnerships that we've that we've worked on. So yeah, it might have been just one of those like someone requesting it and then taking a look and it's like, oh, they have a nice API. We can just hit this endpoint. You paste an API key in and spin up a room. You know, I felt like that was one of our leveraging advantage of being small and nimble and being able to just uh, crank out an integration like that. That yeah, I, I will say that the reaction that you have, I was just exposed to like this group of Podcasters doing going through this little cohort on learning how to podcast, and someone brought up Savvy Cal, and they the room discovered it, and everyone was going wild for it, which was just incredible to see. That's so cool yeah. to see, huh? Yeah, yeah, what a trip. You know, back in the day, like when you wanted a SaaS app, let's say when you were like twenty one, and you were like, I want an app that's going to make ten grand a month and will support me. I think we would have probably thought, a, you know, maybe it never, maybe it'll never happen, but b. I don't know, now that you're here, like you're here, you're living the dream that you wanted your entire teenage year, you know, all your teenage years in your early 20s. <laughs> and like, how does that feel, man? Do you ever think about that? I try to, I try to remember because it's so easy to, to just be on to the next thing and be on to the next stress and worry and, you know, 
one thing that I'm very aware of is like you get to a certain revenue milestone, then you start growing your team, and suddenly I was talking to some founders at Microconf about this. Suddenly you feel very poor again because yeah. <laughs> payroll is expensive. <laughs> and when you're like, okay, now I'm now I'm graduating from this kind of reach these milestones as a kind of a solo operator. And it's amazing, and it's basically you know replacing a, a nice developer salary worth of money. And then it's like, oh, and the next phase is growing the team. And suddenly it's like, oh, there's new new mountains to conquer there. And you know now we have to grow in order to sustain you know continuing to grow the team. So you know that's always a looming stressor in my mind. But I do try to take stock as much as I can of the fact that like this is kind of the golden age for my entrepreneurial career, and you know that's that's something worth celebrating and being feeling proud of. Yeah, it absolutely is. And so folks have a reference point. The last time you were public about revenue, you said you crossed 20K MRR. And that was six months ago or a year ago? Yeah, probably about, I bet that was around the last time we recorded in November, I think was around then. Okay. Yep. yep. And so yeah, like growth is, I, I will say it's been uh, continuing to plug along nice and consistent, like a, <laughs> like any good bootstrap SaaS app. So yeah, it's uh, it's been a fun journey. And I feel like Trying again back to my previous point, like trying to take stock of of progress we've made, and also feeling very like aware of the fact that the roadmap is super long, and there's so many good ideas, and uh, obviously want to build them all at the same time, but that's not possible. So incremental progress. Yep. And is there any any features that you've just launched that you're stoked about, or that you'll be launching? You know, you've already talked about that may be launching in the next month or or two. Yeah, so I feel like the last couple of months have been investing a bunch into a couple bigger projects that I'm hoping will have a nice a nice return for the company. So we're really excited about a closed CRM integration that we're about to release, and I think I think we might be the first scheduling tool to natively integrate with with that ecosystem. And I feel like close.com. Yeah, yeah, I feel like the, the the type of customers that would turn to close are like kind of an ideal savvy cal customer. You know, like. You're not wanting to go into Salesforce yet, and you, you want a, a nicer experience that is focused on being a little bit of a better tool to use. And so, I think there's a lot of alignment there. And so, I'm excited about like kind of seeing what this looks like to um, to kind of co-promote with another another really great bootstrap company. And I think uh, so. The other feature that we're working on is meeting polls. So, to basically allow allow you to send out a poll similar to what you would, could do with Doodle, propose some times to a group of people and have them vote on on times that work best for them. And this was this is going to be a free feature. So, so dipping our toes in the freemium waters. Excellent. Yeah, and I think I, I've been kind of thinking on freemium since day one with Savvy Cal, and it's always a it's always a conversation. If I look at the the kind of the playbook of the biggest the biggest players in my space, Calendly, you know, being being the biggest one, they've obviously grown a lot off of the viral loop component of having a, a, a free version of their product. And so it's like, yeah, that's something that I can't I can't ignore. But also revenue is nice too. <laughs> and for sustainability, profitability. So I think this feels like to me a good middle ground of building something additive to what the product is today and offering that for free. So not cannibalizing anything that we have already. Feels like a good first entrance into freemium. 
I feel like it's a great first link of the chain is the term I would use. And it's engineering is marketing plus plus, right? When we think about engineering as marketing, it's like, I'm going to build a website grader, HubSpot SEO website grader. And you go, you get your website graded and then it's like, okay, this is not a first link in a chain because th- the next step is not, oh, there's more features available in the website grader and it's a paid plan. It's like, oh, it just happened to be built by this company who also runs a, a CRM marketing software. You are giving them functionality that is actually heavily related and I'm guessing that it's easy to just, well, sign up your account and it'll be available in that account. I mean, it's just a, a, it truly is a freemium model. And I think it's a really elegant way to do it. Yeah. And it gets their account kind of set up, you know, like you'll ideally still want to connect your calendar account so that when you're creating a meeting poll, you can see your events there and, and know when, what times you're available. So it kind of already sets your account up for success for the, the full, you know, paid experience as well. So yeah, I'm pretty stoked about it. Our sponsor this week is Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub. Microsoft for Startups is on a mission to help all founders innovate and grow no matter their background, location, or progress. To this end, they've recently launched Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub, a platform that provides founders with free resources to help solve startup challenges. Members of the platform get a ton of benefits that can help founders build their startup faster from day one up to $150,000 in Azure credits, free development tools like GitHub, free Microsoft collaboration and productivity software like Teams and Outlook, offers from startup-friendly partners, and more. A strong and diverse network is critical to a startup's success. And so Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub is making this historically inaccessible resource open to all by providing members access to a mentor network as well as technical advisors. Members can book time with mentors to get expert feedback and advice on their product roadmap, business plan, fundraising approach, marketing plan, and more. The program is open to everyone, no matter your startup stage. And unlike other programs, there are no funding requirements. And the sign-up process takes less than five minutes. Learn more about Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub at aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. That's aka.ms slash startups for the rest of us. So this is the part of the show where I ask you a question that I already know the answer to, but I know that folks listening to this who follow the Savicale story, they see you, your feature velocity is is exceptional. And it seems like there are, you know, are many developers when it was just you for so long. But also it feels like you build the right things. You know, I mean, some mistakes founders make is they work on the wrong things and it's hard. This is the, there's certainty and uncertainty when in certain areas of your business, right? It's certain that once I know we should build this meeting feature, it's certain we can build it. Now it's uncertain if we'll build it really well and it's uncertain if we even should build it, right? But, but building it, email support is a certainty. You know, there's these things that are just pretty certain. What to build and marketing are usually the two big uncertainties, I think, right? Marketing, execution, what to do next, blah, blah, blah. What is your mental process? for looking at that list and saying, well, this is what we're going to build. This is our roadmap. You know, how, how do you decide on that? Well, it's, it's tricky. It's an art form, right? Like, because if you try to get too scientific about it and you're like, well, I'll, I'll pull my customers and the one that gets the most upvotes will build that, that's kind of a recipe for disaster, right? Because oftentimes your customers don't actually know exactly what they need. <laughs> like, they're not, you can't expect them to necessarily be that inventive, right? And also, like you're not necessarily optimizing for exactly what people are demanding. What you're trying to do is steer the ship in a certain direction that, that is aligned with your strategy. So I think it's really important to, to kind of have a, a vision that is rooted in, you know, who am I building this for? And learning at a higher level, like what, 
what problems does this group of people experience and how can I build to address those problems as opposed to getting kind of really specific with customers and, and trying to like, you know, do one of those feature upvotey things. I've kind of avoided those um, because I felt like that would put extra pressure on like, well, the masses are voting for this feature and maybe it aligns with strategy, maybe it doesn't. And so, but it is a careful balance. Like, like how much do you, how much time do you spend talking to customers and, and trying to soak in feature requests versus kind of stepping back and saying like, this is where I think we can be different from what's on the market today. And this is where I think we can really level up the status quo outside of what people are asking for. And I think there's, the answer is probably somewhere in between, you know, it's like, I think I have this tweet that I tweeted once. It's like product development is the art of disappointing customers at a rate they can accept, you know, That's a great way. Um, great thing to say. so like, you know, people are always going to be mildly disappointed because you can't build everything, even small features. Like a lot of small features have to wait on the roadmap for a surprisingly long amount of time, just because there's always a million things that you could be building and you just have to pick you just have to pick a few at any given time to be working on. So, so I think it's like, you know, trying to stay in tune with like, what are the things that people are really, really needing? And when you start to spot those patterns, right? We used to see this all the time at Drip, I feel like, when it's just like, oh, I got, you know, in the last two weeks, I've heard multiple times people asking for the same thing, maybe in different ways. And if it's something that seems pretty valuable, seems broadly applicable and is low effort, then I like to build those things quickly. You know, I think there's, there's a lot of value in providing some quick wins, um, and it really, it really generates a lot of goodwill from customers when you're able to do that. But you can't be that reactive all the time. So, you know, I think probably the latest iteration uh, in in our process that has helped is thinking about things in six week cycles, because what that does is gives gives you enough room to say, all right, in this time period, we know we wanted we want to bite off this more ambitious project, and if we don't give ourselves the time to to work on bigger projects, then we just end up optimizing for the smaller quick wins because those feel a lot better, like quicker dopamine hits, right? So I like thinking of things in the six-week cycle where it's like, what's the big ambitious thing we want to do here? And then all the rest can be kind of filled in with smaller things that are, you know, those quicker wins. Very nice. Well said. Yeah. A bit rambly, but... Those are my thoughts. <laughs> it's a complicated topic. Yeah, I would. I would similarly, as you said, it is. It is to me. It's way more art than science. There is some science in it because it's like, well, how many requests and what percent do I think will use it? But even that's a guess. It's, it's art-ish, you know. And then there's a lot of, as you said, strategy. I think vision, like their founder gut, and you just you're not going to bat a thousand, right? You're. You're hopefully you can bat. I don't even know. I don't know what a good batting average is of what, of what, you know, building features that's, that a lot of people use 60%, you know, 70%. I mean, there, there's some number in there. And I think that sometimes the bigger, more ambitious features, they're more risky, right? It's like, if you're going to spend three months building something, you need a little, I need a little more justification than just, I think this is going to be a hit. Yeah. And it's interesting. Like I've started thinking of features more as bets, similar to as Corey and I are talking through different marketing projects that we can invest in. I mean, a lot of that stuff comes down to, do you want to add time or money into the equation? You know, And mm-hmm. so if we want to up our SEO game, there's some, there are some things we could spend money on that would probably accelerate our results faster. Some of these things, the one we're facing right now is coming with like a, a 12-month commitment, several thousand dollars a month. So like, not nothing for a, for a company of our size. And it's like, what's the ROI on that going to be? I don't know exactly. I th- it it should show results. There are case studies that 
that seem positive, but also doesn't necessarily generalize. So we can't know exactly what the what the results are going to be. But so so then that's just kind of taking a bet. And similarly, with building product, you're mostly you know betting on are you increasing technical debt in you know something that you're going to have to maintain moving forward, and what's the initial cost going to be? Like how much engineering time are we burning? What's the opportunity cost? What things are we not building because we built that feature? Yeah, it's a trade-off, and it, especially when you're small. I mean, I know even when we got big, what were we, 18 engineers or something when we left Drip? It's like, we did have more leeway, and I know more bandwidth to push stuff through. But man, when it's just one or two of you, that's it's a lot of weighing. And that's that thing, you know, the thing I say all the time, being a founder is, most of being a founder is making hard decisions with incomplete information. And this is like the definition of that. The hard decisions, where we're going to bet $20,000, $30,000 over the next year, where we're going to bet a month, two months, three months of time to build a feature. Yep. And that's the uncomfortable part, right? As the numbers get bigger, the bets get bigger, right? Like yeah. in the early days you're betting with, well, you don't have much to lose and also the upside is not as big, whereas now like it's you know, it just increasingly gets gets bigger. Yeah, that's right. I was talking to a founder. This was probably it was over a year ago now, but he really struggled. He was a new, he'd been running his business on the side, but like not charging for it for like a year because he, and he had a fear that like no one's going to pay for it. And I was like, well, you need to find that out now, bro, because they don't, (laughs) but he really struggled. He said, I've worked jobs my whole life and here I am and I don't know what to do next. And I just want someone to tell me what to do. And I was like, I felt so bad, but I was like, that's not what this is. Like you've signed up for something that is the exact opposite of that for better or worse. Like it's amazing because you can do whatever the hell you want, but you can do whatever the hell you want and you have to pick what you're going to do. Otherwise you're going to, you're just going to flounder. Yeah. No, that is such a, an interesting thing that you don't necessarily realize until, until you maybe have a conversation like that where you're like, oh yeah, that is that adds an extra element of stress to the whole thing because the buck stops with you. It's like, <laughs> and every time you make a decision, there's not a boss to go cross check it with. There's not someone else who's like, well, ultimately it's their responsibility. I mean, it's it's all you. So that, yeah, getting comfortable with that. I guess that's just part of the entrepreneurial journey, right? It's a skill. It's a learned skill, I think. And I don't think most of us are taught that because we go to school, kindergarten in the US, kindergarten through 12th grade, and you always know what the next thing is. You have these assignments, you're going to do it, then you're going to graduate from third grade, then fourth grade, then fifth grade. You go through high school, then pretty much you're either going to trade school, you get in a job, or you're going to college. If you go to college, sometimes there's, what is it, post-secondary, post-secondary, you know, it's like master's degree, PhD. You get out in the world, you're probably going to get a job within your field, maybe, maybe not, but it's like, and then you have a job and then you have a boss who tells you what to do. But like the first moment when you are literally working on something, it's like, I have to figure this out. I think we're not trained very well in the standard, you know, education system to go off and do our own thing. Yep. I would agree. All right. So I'm going to mix it up. I want to find out. I have a fun question for you. Sweet. Would you rather fight... One duck size. No, wait a minute. One horse sized duck. <laughs> was it a hundred duck sized horses? That was a question someone asked Cortland oh Allen gosh. and I. People had just been talking about it. So I do want to hear your answer. I don't know if you heard our, our no, answer. No, I did uh, not. Oh, no. okay. So one duck sized horse. No, one horse sized duck or a thousand duck sized horses. It's either a hundred or a thousand. I forget Oof. what the number is. It doesn't really matter, right? Oh, man. 
It's a great question. <laughs> I'm stalling. <laughs> it's a terrible question. <laughs> yeah. Can you, can you give me a definition of the word? Can you use the word in a sentence? Yeah. So I guess death by a thousand duck bills sounds terrible. So I would rather... <laughs> would rather have one organism to fight. <laughs> oh my gosh, really? Look at you. Jeez. I went with uh, I went with the thousand or the the large number of duck-sized horses because I oh, think duck-sized I could just... horses. They're little tiny horses. Duck not ducks. Size, okay. Little tiny yeah. horses. Okay. Yes. Mm. But that doesn't mean your answer is wrong. I just thought, man, a, a duck size, a horse-sized duck is that that bill is going to do some damage. <laughs> <laughs> Death by a thousand hooves. Mm-hmm. That, that doesn't sound great either. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll take the. I'll, I'm going to take on that giant duck. The big guy. All right. Yep. And your weapon of choice, freemium. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. So I do. I do have another question, a little more serious, but still on the fun side. What is something that you've bought in, let's say, the past six months? for under $100, it can be you know, right around under $100 that you feel like has given you way more value than that $100. And then we'll, we'll both answer it and then we'll do it for 1000 as well. What do you have for 100 Okay, this one, so this one, it kind of impacts my daily life. So I put it in this category and it's a coffee roasting kit. Tell me more. Yes, this was about $65 and it's basically a, basically it's a stovetop popcorn popper. And there's this company called Sweet Maria's and you can buy green coffee beans from them, unroasted in small batches. And I generally roast coffee once a week using this and it takes about 15 minutes total. So not a huge time commitment. And in exchange, I get this added element of joy because coffee is a big part of my life. I drink it every day, you know, have, have several cups and usually in a couple different forms. I'll have like a cappuccino in the morning, maybe a pour over in the afternoon. And Getting to getting to like play around with different roasting levels and different uh, different regions and just every time I have a cup cup of coffee, it's just a slightly different experience and I get to I get to take a little joy in that. Has I feel like made that kind of daily ritual just slightly more special and so I think that has been a big value add in my life and also. I mean, it, it helps too that it's way cheaper buying green coffee beans, like significantly cheaper. You know, before that, buying just locally roasted whole bean coffee, it's like 20 bucks a bag or whatever. And now I'm spending like, I don't know, $100 on beans every six months or something. So, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, you've always been the artisan with the non-automatic, what is manual, like latte cappuccino machine. Yep. And I know you tamp it to exactly <laughs> 31 PSI or whatever. <laughs> That's not the right number, but I know you tamp it and you yep. make it and your your cappuccinos are second to none. So it makes sense that you would go, you're going back further in the chain soon. You're going to you're gonna have a coffee plantation. You're going to get an acre of land here in <laughs> <Right>. Minneapolis. <laughs> I think that's where yeah. I draw the line because, man, that's the, I've, I've watched videos on this website of like, here's a video of the place where these beans were made. You know, so hipster. But it's like, oh man, that's a very manual grilling process. And uh, just to get these like unroasted little beans, my gosh. It stops there. Yeah. Cool. That's a good one. For me, it's an Echo, an Amazon Echo show in the kitchen, which is like, they're 125 bucks, but they're always on sale for around 100. And then I had an old Echo Show that I traded in, so I got like 25 dollars off plus 25 percent off. So I literally we paid 50 bucks for the for the new model. But what I like about it is it's a, it's an eight inch screen. And it sits on the counter. It's got a nice speaker so you can listen. The tunes sound great because it's got speakers all around it. I set a bunch of timers, right? I have three, four timers going at once when I'm cooking. And 
You can pull up recipes on it and they'll be on the screen. You can scroll. It is a touch screen. It's only eight inches, so it's not huge and it's kind of widescreen, but it, it totally does the job. And for us, our house is big, right? We live in Minnesota, so we have a basement, we have a first floor, we have a second floor, we have a rooftop deck. Like it's to get a hold of kids who have uh, headphones on, even listening to anything, an audiobook quietly, is like impossible in this house. So, but with the Echoes, they are basically an intercom. I can either drop in to any of them, I can drop into all of them, or I can just do an announcement. And in fact, when I'm traveling, I will often, like in the morning when I wake up, I will type in an announcement that goes through all the echoes. And it's like, hello, I'll do it in the, uh, the Alexa voice, right? Hello, this is your father speaking. I miss you today, you know. And so, I don't know, you know, it, there's privacy. Look, I get it. Some people just do not want Amazon <laughs> listening in your house and I get it. I just, I don't care. I use it all the time. And in fact, I have the little one on my bedside table, my nightstand, and that's my alarm. I ask it about the weather. I can use it to turn plugs on and off in the room, right? None of this is news to most people, but it's like, it, it really is... It's home automation without, I, you know, I didn't want to rewire the house. I, didn't, I mean, you just buy this $15 plug and you plug it in and you name it in the app. And then you just say, Alexa, turn on the sound machine or turn off the sound machine or whatever. And you can set timers. When the Christmas tree was here, I would plug them both into smart ones and I had automatic schedules. You know, I mean, it's just mm -hmm. all the things that like you, yeah. and it works. You want it to be simple. You want it to work and you don't want it to be expensive. And it's finally here. The promise of, since they, they've been making since 1985, right? <laughs> of all this automation. It's, it's pretty sweet. That's cool. I think I'm going to need to, yeah, probably revisit. So we haven't had the, the like voice commanded devices in our house for a while, but we have quite a few like smart devices, like little light switches, like hue bulbs and the little switch thing where you can plug anything in and it's on a internet connected thing. So we have that for our sound machine and lights in the bedroom so you don't have to get up. But like I've been just observed that like a lot of this feels like truly a downgrade from the analog iteration before because now it's like if I want to turn this light off, I got to pull up my phone, open the right app, click the thing. There's a little bit of latency. And so, you know, yeah. um, whereas this is more yeah. like this is bringing the clapper, <laughs> the old yeah. technology of the clapper, <laughs> Absolutely is. but a little smarter, right? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that feels like. That I, right now in my setup, there's kind of something missing where it's like, to me, it feels most of the time like a downgrade. I actually have a, I have a remote that, that ties in wirelessly to the IoT switch thing, which just feels funny. Like, you know, it's like probably routing through the internet when I click a button instead of just like speaking directly to the device. But Very cool. How about 1,000? Something you bought for under 1,000 you feel like it's been super cool. Yeah, this one's a quirky one too. So again, along the theme of things that impact daily life, I have this this device, and I promise it's G-rated, but it's called the BedJet. <laughs> oh, this is going to be good, yeah. What does it do? So it's this little uh, thing. I think it was like a Shark Tank product actually or something. It's this little device that has a, a hose and you slip it under your sheets basically, so it's on top of your mattress, and there's a remote for it, and you can turn on heat or cold at different levels. So it's similar to like what you get from an electric blanket, but it's even more versatile and it just pumps air under under your sheets. Fascinating. And now I live in an apartment, a newer apartment building, and these things are extremely well insulated. So like even in the even in the winter time, like there are points where it's like, do we need to run our air conditioner right now? Like just because they retain, you know, heat so well. And so like I've talked to other apartment dwellers and like temperature control, especially at night, is just so 
tricky, so tricky to get right. And so this has been a huge upgrade. Like I think when I when I started using it and like figuring out what dialing in what the right settings are, it's just like I was getting consistently better nights of sleep. I wasn't waking for the middle of the night or kicking a leg out because it's hot or whatever. You know, but I always like to sleep with covers on. I don't like just sleeping all exposed, you know. So this just helped dial in just the right uh, right experience. Yeah, dude, anything that can help you get a better night's sleep is worth its weight in gold. Yep. Like w- whether you use a sound machine, I, I wear an eye mask because I used to wake up at 5.30 in the morning. I, as I've gotten older, I'm more sensitive to light. I used to be able to sleep in any, you know, I used to sleep very deeply, very heavy, and I used to sleep through everything and I don't anymore. I think once we had kids, things started changing too, but I now use an eye mask and then usually in the middle of the night, I'll wake up and p- actually put earplugs in, which I didn't used to do. So knowing temperature control, temperature control is not a huge issue for me, but I can imagine anyone who has that issue could be a big deal, man. Yep. Yep. Well, in true fashion, my thousand dollar item is another technology product, but for me, it's this big curved monitor that I have. And I got it maybe a year ago. It's a 38 inch Dell. It was right around a thousand. I think it was a little more. It was probably like 12 with tax, maybe 13 or whatever, but in the spirit of this, and there's a 34 inch. And the reason I'm, one of the reasons I realized it is because in the spirit of Sherry getting that keyboard and the mouse that I talked about at the beginning of the show, she got the 34-inch equivalent of mine. Because I'm going to be honest, the 38-inch is, it's a little too big. I never, <laughs> I have it on an arm and I can yeah. move it. I never look at the right, like, six inches of the screen, you know? So the 34 would have been fine, but it's curved. So, because when you get that big, it's hard. You just have to, your head has to move so much. And first world problems, right? <laughs> and um, But the thing, the reason it's amazing beyond just it being an awesome monitor with a lot of screen real estate, because I believe you can kind of never have too much, is it is a USB-C hub. And as much as I like Apple products, I f***ing hate that there's only two lightning, or what is it, lightning, thunderbolt, USB-C yep. ports, whatever they yep. call them. They're mm-hmm. proprietary stupid name mm-hmm. for them, but there's two of them. Yeah. Why are there not four? There should be at <laughs> least four. There should be six. I had so many dongles, and then the dongles stopped working, and the, you know, you're carrying it around. And even at my desk, I'm just like, plug, plug, plug. So now it's... On the back of this monitor, I plug my hardwire, my Ethernet cable right in for my mesh. You have a mesh router because the house can't get surfaces out the house without a bunch of them. So I have the Ethernet cable plugged in, and then I have the mic. I have the, I don't know what else I have. Oh, the <laughs> camera. Mm-hmm. You know, a camera plugged in. Yeah. And then there's just a single USB-C coming out of the Dell monitor, and I plug it into my laptop in the morning. It's my, it's my docking station, really. And it is huge. And so that's where I was I was kind of iffy about it because I was going to get the, you can get, the, I think, the same model without the USB-C hub in it. And I was like, ah, it's an extra 100, 200 bucks. I'll spend that. And I did. And it's like, ah, I ain't going back now. So that when Sherry started eyeballing my setup, she's like, I'm ready to, I'm ready to grow up and, and move, <laughs> move to that setup. So I just ordered her a, a monitor today. That's great. Yeah, I went ultra wide, gosh, probably six months ago. And it has been nice. It was an adjustment, you know, figuring out how to do windowing on it properly because you're not maximizing anything anymore or getting anywhere close to that. Nope. <laughs> so that was tricky. But yeah, and I also experienced, I'm currently maxed out on my ports and it's like, it was a serious puzzle to solve. And I have this like, so unfortunately my monitor doesn't have the the hub built in, but I have this old external hub that I actually dug out of like an old bin where I had electronic stuff from prior iterations of setups and it has like just enough ports and my camera communicates well with it. I had this other like simpler Apple dongle thing, but 
it wouldn't feed my webcam feed through at the same time as the other. Like there's some kind of data rate thing. I don't know why Apple makes it so difficult. Come on. <laughs> it feels like they could do better. I mean, it's when I got the new Air and it had two, I was like, I'm going to send this back. And then I looked at, I'm going to send it back for the MacBook and then the MacBook Pro. And I looked and it only has two ports too. And I'm like, how are they doing this? I get, I get that there's no headphone jack in the iPhone anymore. That still irritates me because the, their AirPods are so so. But yeah, this is a real, a real mess. Do you use, so I use windowing software called Magnet, which is in the Mac App Store, probably 20 bucks, where I have a keyboard shortcuts and I can just boom, 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 place in a grid and I can do left third, middle third, right third. I can do top or bottom. I can do quartiles. I can do halves, whatever. And you can set up custom ones, but frankly, they have 20, you know, presets. Do you use software like that? Because I cannot stand dragging the edges of window. It's just not, it's not going to work for me. Yeah, I have. I did a little searching around, and I was like surprised that there didn't seem to be one like de facto winner. You know, like where's the, I don't know the, the savvy cal of schedule Coda software yeah, equivalent yeah. of it. You know, the savvy <laughs> yeah, and I couldn't find it, but I I did find this one called Rectangle that's like very simple, and I think it might even be open source, but it's like actually good. <laughs> um, He's just throwing shade. <laughs> <laughs> Send emails to Derek at yeah. <laughs> The UX, I'm saying. Yeah, yeah I agree. You know, open I agree. source is not known for uh, I hear what fantastic you're UX. I use WordPress. I, I, I like it, <laughs> and uh, the UX is a bit rough. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like a developer made it, I'll say that. And I've only learned a few of the keyboard shortcuts. I haven't committed all of them to memory. I, you know, It's like something that I will gradually probably build up the muscle memory on those things. So it's a little, it's still a little bit frustrating because I, and I hop around a lot too. So I'm only at this station for a small fraction of the week. And then I'm like hopping around to, you know, go, go sit in the living room for a while, go to a coffee shop. I just love moving around a lot. So, so that means my muscle memory is like very slowly building up on it. But, you know, I think that's about the best I can do. You learn what you need. All right, sir. Well, thanks for taking a few minutes to come chat with me today. I know, you know, I got some feedback at MicroConf that some folks were like, when you bring on people that you have rapport with and that you know already, like those are the best shows. You know, the Cortland Allens, the, when Anar and Tracy come on and we go off the rails about news stories. So it's good to have you on because it's just always easy conversation and good radio. Yeah, thanks for having me back. I, I echo their sentiments every time I hear some of the, the regular guest host rotation. It's always, a, it's always a pleasure. So glad to be part of it. Awesome, man. And if folks want to keep up with you, obviously SavvyCal.com if they want to check out what you're working on. And you are Derek Reimer on Twitter. It's D-E-R-R-I-C-K-R-E-I-M-E-R. Thanks again, man. Thanks. As we wrap up this episode, thank you so much for joining me this week and every week. I hope this episode provides some motivation, maybe some thought process or some strategies that help you grow your business in the coming weeks and months. And I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning.